Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We wrapped up our four-week mini-series on Jesus' Beatitudes and our calling as followers of Christ last week. And we saw in those, those uh, texts there that Jesus gave us a list of very specific behaviors and truths that lead us to a truly good life, a truly blessed life. And as we saw, those, those truths, those commands, they are difficult, but they are also superior, and the reward is more than worth it. And today, is, we're going to kick off chapter 7, and the more I dig deep into these first several verses, the more meaningful they become. I, I've titled our study, Faith That Amazes Jesus. Think about that. We're going to look at a Roman soldier whose faith massively impressed Jesus. Many of you know this passage. This soldier had a servant who was very dear to him who was about to die. And the, the, the way this soldier asked Jesus for help dropped Jesus' jaw, you could say. The, the text says Jesus marveled at him. So what can we learn from this account? To get our gears going, let me toss out this question. What would you have to do this coming week to impress Jesus? To get him to say something like, you are an amazing Christian. The word marvel in the verse that we're going to look at means to stand in awe. What would you and I have to do to get the Son of God to stand in awe of us? I suspect I have never accomplished that in my whole life, and I probably never will. But Luke 7 definitely gives us something to aim for. It is possible. The guy in this chapter did it. This is an incredible thought. And this historical record that we're about to look at makes for a, a very insightful and divine case study in excellent faith. This is what top quality faith looks like in action. And as we work our way through these verses, every one of us should be asking ourselves, do I have faith like this? The application is very simple. Does my faith look like this? If not, what steps can I take to get it? And if we're already headed in the right direction, what steps should I take to further grow in my faith? To be more and more like this, which Jesus admired so much. This centurion's faith life, faith life is what God smiles upon and blesses and even admires. He marvels at it. Oh, to increasingly experience the privilege of bringing this kind of pleasure to the God who not only saved us, but also gives us the grace to glorify Him as we express our faith in the very real daily challenges of life. That's what we're looking at here. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 1, Luke 7 beginning in the verse 1. It says, When he, that is Jesus, had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion's slave, let me just interject real quick. Many of you know a centurion is a soldier who commands 100 other soldiers. And this centurion had a servant. He had a slave, and the verse continues, who was highly regarded by him, was sick, 
and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, that is the centurion, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. So there is the dramatic setting, the the very real life situation at hand. One of the things that I love about the Word of God is how relevant and practical it is to my life and my family, to yours, to this world. Sometimes I fear that we separate the spiritual and the physical too much. For the life of me, everything spiritual I look at is highly practical. These are life-saving, life-guiding measures that we read and study in God's Word. These spiritual truths tremendously impact our decisions, don't they? They tremendously impact our emotions and our thought processes. They impact our relationships, outcomes. But they not only transform our outlook and our approach to this life, of course, they transform the state of our eternal life as well. This is what the Bible teaches. But bringing this all back to right now, we've got a centurion with a servant that is about to die. If you're taking notes, here are nine characteristics of marvelous faith that we see in the life of the centurion. Number one. He was willing to respect greatly those under him. The verse says he highly regarded his slave. Now instantly, we recognize that there is something different about this centurion. The King James says that this servant was dear unto him. Now we don't know much about this centurion, just what the text says. We can only assume so much before we venture into speculation But we get the impression that he is a man who does not see himself as being above others, even those who are under him. You can imagine as a pastor, one of the things that I really admire in other pastors is when they behave themselves in such a way as to be one of the people in the church. I'm just one of the guys. Now, surely my calling is, is a noble one. It, it does carry a measure of authority and significant spiritual influence in various ways. But me, I'm just one of the guys. I am a saved sinner, just like everyone else. But if I'm not careful, and if you are not careful, and we are not daily being humbled by the truth of God's word, We can so easily slip into thinking that we are above others, above younger Christians, above the world, above our children, and so on. The fact that this high-ranking Roman soldier had such strong feelings of care and concern for a servant, a slave, speaks volumes. There is wisdom already and warning to you and to me. Secondly, we see in these verses that he put others' needs ahead of his own. I mean, this is is so straightforward. You've heard me say many times that if we read through the text too fast, we miss the significance of many of the details in Scripture. So to point number two here, let me ask, 
If you had the opportunity to see Jesus in person here in Gig Harbor and ask him for anything, what would you ask for? Think about that for a moment. Because that's the exact circumstance this centurion found himself in. Jesus was in his town. And this high-ranking soldier had one opportunity to ask this miracle-performing Jesus for anything. And he asked him to heal his servant. Does this not speak volumes to you and me? He put others' needs ahead of his own. Does that characterize us and our faith walk? Can those who know us best say, yes, she often puts others' needs ahead of her own. Yes, he often cares for others, even though I know he has things to do in his own home and in his own life that need tending to. Of course, not that we neglect ourselves, but that we have a pattern, a lifestyle, a practice, as we looked at last week, a practice of frequently putting others first. Many of you have studied and know very well the first few verses of Philippians chapter 2. Verses 3 and 4, these are such excellent lifestyle verses for Christians. It says this, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, it is very important to notice in the text there that we are to look out for our own interests. It does not to say, say to cease from those things. But we are also to look out for the interests of others and even regard them as more important than our own. This is the Christian way. This is our calling. One of the things I love so much and thank God so much for about our church family is how often I see people serving others, serving the Lord, even though I know they have great needs of their own to tend to. Not to the point of neglect, but to the point of faith and priority. Whether it's teaching in junior church when you could really use the encouragement and inspiration of this, this Bible time together, praise God for the live stream. Maybe it's working on the living nativity cleanup even when your own house is a mess. I mean, I, I get it. The centurion had great faith because he put others' needs ahead of his own. Look at verse 4 now. It says, when they came to him, that is the Jewish elders that the centurion sent, it says, they earnestly implored him, saying, he is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Point number three. He had an honorable reputation, particularly, notice, among those under him. The Romans ruled the Jews at this point in history. And this, this centurion's reputation was so honorable, even to his subjects, that it says these Jewish elders earnestly implored Jesus to grant the centurion's request. They desperately begged Jesus on the centurion's behalf. Observe, these Jews are begging on behalf of a Roman. 
That's noteworthy considering the animosity between these two people groups and the Roman rule over the Jews. But we also notice here that, these, that, the, that the centurion trusted these Jews with this message. This is a very uh, personal message of immense value to him, and he trusted these Jews. This speaks volumes to the relationship he had with them. In summary, we have the Jews telling Jesus, this guy deserves it. And what drives them to say that? Point number four, he loved God's people. They said, he loves our nation. Now notice that it, does not, that it does not say that he got along with the local Jews. No, he loved Israel. Again, that, that contradicts all expectation. Romans didn't typically love Jews, just like the Jews didn't typically love the Samaritans. That's, that's part of what makes the, the woman at the well account so powerful. Same for the, the good Samaritan example that Jesus gave. This Samaritan loved people even when it was not expected, even when the opposite was the norm. This highlights what we just studied a few weeks ago about Jesus' command, if you're really his disciple, his follower, one of his own, then love your enemies, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. These Jewish leaders are saying this of the centurion, why should Jesus heal his servant? Because he loves us. Can you imagine a higher, more personal compliment, better tribute? If you and I love God, we will love God's people. 1 John 5.16 says this, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 23 says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Could the commands of God be clear on this point? Notice in that verse, he sandwiched the command between the statement, this is a command, this is what he commands of us, that we believe in him and love one another. I fear for Christians who do not love one another. This centurion loved the people of God. And we don't even know if he was a believer or not, but we do know that he had faith. The elders also said it was he who built us our synagogue. This leads us to our next point, number five and six. Number five is this, he loved in word and deed. How did the Jews know he loved them? Not because he said it, but because he did it. We studied this last Sunday when Jesus grievously asked his crowd of disciples, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? In other passages, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The principle is this, love acts. It behaves. It performs just like faith acts and loves and demonstrates itself. Love is what a person does. It is not just what they say. You understand this. Last week, we saw that Jesus commended those who not only come to him and those who not only listen to his words, 
but those who specifically act on them. The centurion here in chapter 7 acted out his love for God's people, and Jesus was very impressed. Point number six. He understood the importance of their worship. The Jewish elder said, it was he who built us our synagogue. He's the guy. He didn't just look out for their general needs. He looked out for their worship. How notable. Again, this goes directly against what you'd expect when the emperor of Rome prefers to be worshipped as a god. The fact that these Jewish elders are pointing out his building the synagogue for them indicates that it was an unexpected and significant noteworthy act of exceptional kindness and goodness. Faith values worship. It's why we love gathering in this place to praise and to worship our Heavenly Father and our King. Let's look now at verse 6 to 10. It says, Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say, to this, to, I say to, this, to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him. And turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. I believe Matthew's record says immediately the slave was healed. Here we find our last three points. Point seven. This is so thought-provoking for us. Point seven. He didn't want to cause Jesus any trouble. Isn't that an interesting one? His respect for Jesus' time and energy was so high that he wished not to inconvenience him any more than absolutely necessary. May I ask, have you ever pondered how often you trouble God or waste his time? I'll admit, this point hit me very unexpectedly. There's so many applications here. For, for example, when you and I pause to pray... Do we consider God's time so precious, so highly esteemed that we are careful not to waste one minute of it? When we come to worship on Sunday, do we intentionally and carefully prepare our hearts and minds so as to not waste one minute of our corporate time in God's presence. The same thoughts for our daily devotions. The overarching question is this, do we have the utmost respect for God's time, graces, and resources? If so, we will be very careful to steward 
and to treasure every ounce of them. All Jesus had done so far was walk in the direction of the centurion's house. And the centurion is already humbled and wanting to not inconvenience Jesus any further. He highly respected Jesus' time. This is such an incredible and and supporting thought for faith that amazes Jesus. When was the last time that you and I really concerned ourselves with not wasting God's time, His graces, and His resources? Does that thought even cross our mind? It will if we have amazing faith. Point eight, the centurion considered himself unworthy of Jesus' presence. This is an extension of the prior point. And this, this is perhaps the most convicting point in my own heart in this whole study. Let me put it this way. If Jesus came to our community and you found out he wanted to come to your house, what would your response be? Think about it for a second. I'll tell you what my first response to this thought was. Awesome. Everybody get ready. Clean the house like the president's coming, right? Put out the fine china. Let's give Jesus our best. And don't you kids dare mess this up or you're getting major screen restrictions. But what was the centurion's response? Lord, please don't come. I am not worthy to have you in my home. The more I ponder this, the more humbled I am by his example. Notice, he wasn't ashamed that he didn't have a nice house. He specifically said, I am not worthy. I am not worthy to have you in my home. Such a high view of Jesus that he saw himself as abased. The word abased means to behave in a way that makes one seem lower or less deserving of respect. Remember, he was not just a soldier in the Roman army. He was a centurion, a man of authority, power, and respect. He was a man with power over the Jews. And it was to this Jew, Jesus, that he said, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. I wish that was the first thought that came to my mind because Jesus was very impressed with this man's faith. Is it just me or are there ways in which we think we deserve the good graces and blessings of God? It's so easy to passively assume that because we're a good Christian, we are somehow worthy Of course Jesus would want to come to my house. It's so easy to think that we are somehow deserving of the graces and blessings of God. Almost as though God would be unjust if he doesn't give us good health or protection from harm or the money to pay all of our good necessary bills. 
without a doubt, this sense of divine entitlement plagues much of today's church. How do we know this? Because the Bible is addressing it. It plagued his followers back then. Contemporary Christianity is ridden, as you know, with a consumer mentality. What is there in the church for me? Viewing God more as a a genie and Jesus as a buddy. When we ought to be learning from the example of this Gentile soldier who said, I am not worthy And did you notice the extent to which his humility went? The scripture is so, so clear. It says not only did he consider himself unworthy to have Jesus in his home, he also felt unworthy to even go to Jesus to ask for healing for his servant. This is so exemplary. He didn't send the Jewish elders because he was a centurion and could command people to do what he wanted. He sent them because he felt unworthy to even speak to Jesus. He said, for this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. My church family, when you and I bow our heads to pray, is there a distinct and proper sense of self unworthiness? Or do we tend to approach the throne of grace with a sense of entitlement, forgetting who it is we are speaking to? Do we tend to barge into the presence of God with expectations that He serve us? It's one thing to humbly and gratefully and confidently claim and trust in the promises of God. It's another to forget that it is God we are speaking to. All I know is that Jesus marveled at the way this centurion approached him. So should we. Point number nine, he publicly believed in the power and authority of God. Instead of troubling Jesus to come any further, the centurion gave this message to Jesus through the elders. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority. Isn't it interesting that he notices that? With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. This centurion is saying, Jesus, I know very well what human authority is, and I know you have divine authority. I command people, you command life and death. All you have to do is say the word, and my servant will live, because you have the authority. Jesus was so impressed by this. And again, so should we. I've read this passage many times before. And I've I've kind of subconsciously thought, okay, it's the principle of authority. Jesus has the power, I get it. But I don't understand what the big deal is here. 
Why would Jesus say, this man's faith is greater than everyone else in Israel I have found? Jesus is helping us to understand. If this is so important to Jesus, then we do well to understand why. So that we can first value what Jesus values, right? But then second, so we can do what he values so greatly. It's not enough to have faith. We have to have faith like this. Notice that this Gentile not only believed in the power of Jesus in his heart, he also spoke it with his mouth. He voiced it to the Jewish leaders and community. This man's faith was not private. Now you know why I wrote point nine as he publicly believed in the power and authority of God. If you and I really believe, we will be heard saying it, declaring it, proclaiming it. Are you ready to do that in 2023? When it will surely be less popular? When you might be mocked for it, harassed for it, when it might cost you and it might cost me. Affirm the power of God often and trust Him with results. Trust Him with the decision and the outcome. We're going to need that big time as we go forward. But this is our calling. This is how the blessing of God works. What was Jesus' response to this centurion's faith? The text says he marveled at him. Jesus stood in awe. And he not only privately marveled, but he publicly marveled. It says that Jesus turned to the whole crowd and said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. That was such a rebuke, no one there could miss it. Jesus is saying that not even among God's own people, which the, which the Jews took great pride in being, not even among God's own people have I found faith this great. In today's terms, that's, that's like Jesus pulling someone off the street and saying, not even in Discovery Baptist have I found faith this great. The this centurion publicly believed in the authority and the power of God, and we should too. So there you have it. Nine characteristics of marvelous faith. We are blessed to have this truth lesson. This, this divine revelation of what true, deep, admirable faith looks and lives like. This is the kind of faith that amazes Jesus. But we have to consider the other side of the coin too. Doing so helps us to better value this kind of faith. You see, there is a faith that does not impress God. In Matthew's parallel account of this situation, chapter 8, verse 11, Matthew records that Jesus also said these words next to this crowd. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The east and the west is referring to the foreign nations, those on, on all sides of Israel. The Gentiles, specifically the non-Jews, it says, and dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's referring to heaven, eternal life, 
So Jesus is saying that many non-Jews will be in heaven. Verse 12, he says, But the sons of the kingdom, speaking of Israel, God's chosen peace people, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is no doubt that Jesus is referencing hell. Eternal separation to the utmost, outermost parts where it is dark and there is weeping and there is gnashing of teeth, far, far apart from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In this shocking statement, Jesus reveals the faith that does not amaze him or God. The quote-unquote faith that utterly fails to usher a person into the kingdom of God, eternal life with God and all those who have been saved. You and I had better know the difference between these two types of faith. If being impressed by the faith of the centurion does not compel us to believe greatly in God's Son, Jesus Christ, then let hell be our motivation. This is what Jesus is teaching. This is the consequence to those who do not believe, even the Jews. And that's the end of the story. If you have any questions, you can meet me up here after the service. No, no, of course, I'm kidding. We can't just end there. Verse 10 in Luke 6 says that when the servants returned to the house, they found the slave healed. Miracle. That's what happens when we trust in Jesus. Let's finish by reading verses 11 to 17. I'm not going to do a deep study on these. I just want to use them as a solid affirmation of what we just studied. They are going to help make the case for why we should work hard at developing this kind of centurionic faith. I think I made that word up, but you get the idea. Verse 11 says, Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. One can only wonder what he said. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. And God has visited his people. This report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding district. As we wrap up, here are just two points that compel us to pursue faith in Jesus like the centurion. Number one, because Jesus cares. Verse 13 gave us a glimpse into who Jesus is. It says, when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her. An entire study could be done on the compassion of Jesus. He's not just a God. 
He's not just the one true God. He is the one true God who cares deeply for you and for me. When a person is moved with compassion, it's because their heart is so prone to empathy. When others hurt, they hurt. Wearsby notes in his commentary that compassion has been defined as your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. Here we see Christ putting this widow's grief in his own heart. He did that because it's his character. It's who he is. It moved him to action. This brings such confidence to our faith. Knowing that it is not a blind faith, it is not a lottery we're playing into, hoping that maybe the great God of heaven will consider our difficulties and perhaps will even do something about them. No, our faith is in God who cares very deeply for us. That carries to the second reason to have faith in Jesus like the centurion. It's because Jesus has the power. You saw the words in verse 14 and 15. Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. That is why we should put our faith in Jesus. He has the power. You see, I can have compassion for someone, but I can't always do something about it. Matter of fact, I can rarely fix the problem or remove the sorrow, and I definitely can't bring the dead back to life. Neither can you. But we know someone who can. And not only do we know he can, we know he will for those who put their faith in him. The day will come, Scripture says, when he will wipe away every tear, every sorrow, every pain, every evil. He will make all things right. And if he wills, he can even bring the dead back to life right now. The truth is, he has the power and he cares. What lessons for us today? Yes, this, this centurion had faith that amazed Jesus. But how about you and me? God's word has given us so much to aim for, hasn't it? It's easy to think, yeah, I got to have more faith. Yeah, I need more faith. Yes, I want more faith. Lord, give me more faith. God has been very specific with us in this text. Nine characteristics, at least. You may find more in the text. Nine characteristics, nine pursuits of amazing faith. Now, of course, amazing faith is only possible because we have an amazing Savior. He is worth trusting, worth following, worth obeying. May we trust Him more and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first I pray that if there is even one here who has not trusted in you, placed their faith in you, and repented, turned from sin, I pray that they will so they can be saved, just like you promise. Your word is so good. For those of us 
who have experienced this saving faith. Lord, help us to better understand and pursue by the grace and spirit of God, sanctifying faith, faith that impresses your son. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.